Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including life groups, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Rob Basham. Church family, you can go ahead and have a seat and you can move in a little bit so that you can welcome those that came for the 11 o'clock service who just probably are showing up right now. We'll just make room for them. Just wave at them. Don't give them shame. Don't give them a problem. It's part of life, right? It's part of life. I'm glad that you are here this morning. We are continuing on in our series, The Book of Ephesians, and we're just continuing to march through this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. Today, I'm going to be jumping right into God's word. We're going to be reading from Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 14. But before I read that, I just want you, as I read this scripture, whether you're just listening to it, whether you're reading along in your pew Bible or on your app, I would just invite you to pay attention to what is stirring in you. What ideas, what feelings are coming up? What are you thinking about God, the creator who you serve? What different things as your mind trails as your mind running down as I read this passage? Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 14. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talking, coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret, but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. This is the word of the Lord. As I read that passage, what was stirring? What was coming to mind? What thoughts did you have about the God that we get to serve? Our reactions in a room like this, full of people, are likely going to be pretty diverse. I imagine that there were some in this room that as I read certain passages and certain, certain verses there that you said, wow. This is a bit of a legalistic passage. This, this feels like it's calling us to behavior modification. And I really hope that Rob doesn't preach one of these, stop doing that, behave better, and just really showing just these limitations that the scriptures give to us. What is prohibited? For some of you, I read this passage and you said, finally, 
We're getting to some of these parameters and these foundations, this moral code that we, the church, are called to live by and to guide our society into. You're saying, I mean, look at this. These aren't just in the Old Testament. These are also in the New. And and we get to then just call the rest of our culture to live by these types of rules. You're saying that I hope Rob challenges us to this way of life and that he calls even those that don't know Jesus to this type of lifestyle because then maybe our society will turn and look a little bit different. For some of you, as I read the passage, you actually had a conviction that was stirred in you and it was different than condemnation as Sean prayed. It was gentle. It was the voice of the Holy Spirit. It was specific. It was fatherly. It was restorative. And there's this beautiful repentance and a new reliance on the Holy Spirit that is already stirring in you this morning. And if I'm to be honest, there's a good number of us in this room that felt condemnation shame, and even some fear. And let me be honest, I really hate that. But for many of us in the room, that is reality. Even some of us that are walking in a good way, that are keeping our confessions current and in the light, and who are believing that we are forgiven, that our sins is as far as from the east as the west, and we know that here, but we don't feel it here, and there's still this heaviness as this passage was read. You see, passages like this are found in many of Paul's letters, and they've been written and read in churches for the last 2,000 years, and Coptic and Orthodox and Catholic and Protestant churches, and the way that people just receive this word is different across time and culture. For many of us, how we interpret what we just read is based on our upbringing, our experiences, the culture that we currently live in, our theological understandings. And it's my hope today to speak at least indirectly to each one of the postures or feelings that we've already talked about, because each is real and each is important. Let me set some more context for what Paul is talking about here. At the end of chapter four, Paul is talking about how, how a transformation needs to take place in our lives when we become under the authority and the rule and reign of Jesus. He's basically saying that our actions should line up with our identity. And the imagery that he uses for this is something he uses in almost every one of his letters. He says, put off the old self, this idea of taking off the old clothing and putting on the new. And we take off the old, the darkened way, the calloused heart, the darkness in understanding what pleases God and what grieves him, and put on the new. And the new outfit we put on is Holy Spirit, and it is full of life. And here he is coming again, and he's saying, you've got to live this way. Your actions should line up with your beliefs. And most of us in this room would say, yes, we agree with that. But how? Because it feels burdensome. It feels burdensome. It feels like behavior modification, and we know that oftentimes that doesn't hold up. In fact, behavior modification sends people running from the church. It leaves many of us tryhards feeling guilty, feeling shame, feeling angered, feeling like frauds or fakes. 
We at Sam Alliance, knowing that many people that attend here have come out of a more legalistic upbringing, are very careful with passages like this. We want to remind you that the reason we behave a certain way is in response to the God that we get to behold. It is in response to our belief in him, in his gift of the Holy Spirit. We respond to him because of what he has done, not out of fear, not to earn his favor, not to earn an audience and hope to see his face. No, we see his face. We encounter him and therefore we respond. We respond in worship. Uh, living in the Middle East for 12 years, I lived in a predominantly Muslim culture where there's just this idea that God is somewhat frustrated and angry with his creation. And there's a scale of good and bad. And that scale and that power of wanting to do what is right is what keeps society together. And so you have this balance. Do your good deeds outweigh your bad? We would call that legalism. And in that type of society, there are good things that come from it, but there's also this burden. And though I had many good moral Muslim friends, many of them struggled with this idea of God being angry with them. Over my years there, I saw many Westerners come and take jobs in the Middle East, whether they were hotel managers, working at an embassy, working for a nonprofit, or some even coming from missions agencies. And over time, I saw something that happened over and over. You see, they would come, and they wanted to make sure that those, their friends and families and neighbors, didn't think they were like the America that maybe they were used to seeing on TV or Hollywood films. They wanted to earn an audience with them by showing them that they were also people of strong strong-rooted morals. But oftentimes that got taken too far. And they forgot to share with these people. Many of them took these jobs or assignments in hopes of sharing the gospel in this dark area of the world. They, they, they wanted them to get it, but they stopped offering the message of freedom in Jesus and created a competing morality, a competing legalism. And at first I would sit back and kind of laugh at it, but it began to really bother me almost saying, my legalism is better than yours, come on over. Like, what is that? When the greatest thing we have to offer those stuck in a system of rules and regulations is freedom in Christ. And so in that setting, the way that I lived my life, the way that our family lived our life was one where we lived in our freedom, in our identity as children of God. And yes, I hope that I was perceived as treating my wife with utmost respect and loving my children. I hope that as a boss, I never abused my authority and people saw the love of Jesus within me. But there were many, where, many things that I also engaged in that were absolute no-goes for the Muslim population. Man, I love cooking bacon in my kitchen. <laughs> that smell of freedom. When we would go to a nice restaurant, I would not think twice about ordering a glass of wine to go with my meal. And when I lost it or lost my temper and was frustrated with an employee, I would go to them and I would apologize. I would ask for their forgiveness and receive forgiveness from God and quickly move on from that. Not having to change my behavior the next week with exceptional good moral behavior in hopes of bringing the scale back up. And as I lived in my life in this way, based in the life of worship, rather than trying to re-earn God's favor, I know that to many of my close Muslim friends and neighbors, my lifestyle was confusingly intriguing. It opened doors to share much of what Paul is sharing here in this letter, that it's about worship, not fear, that it's about transformation, not behavior modification. It's about freedom that you and I have in Jesus. And it's my desire today as we look at this text to allow us to take a deep breath 
And to realize that Paul is trying to communicate to us a new way of flourishing, a new way of living for a new humanity. And here he is giving us some guidelines for that flourishing. You see, when we live through that transformation and through that worship, it is actually missional. It examples to society something different, a new and better way. You see, the people around you and your spheres of influence throughout the valley and in the city, your neighbors, your classmates, those that are around you, they're, they're watching. And they're saying, this new way of living, do you really believe what you say you believe? And if so, do you really walk it out? Has it transformed you? And if so, does it make your life and community around you better? You see, here we have an invitation not to behavior modification, but to renewed living that releases peace. A renewed living is our invitation. And when we live into that, it releases peace everywhere we go. Let me do some quick expository work on our text here. I see three things that Paul is recommending we do if we want to flourish in this type of life. Three things that I see here. The first is this. We are called to live in love. He makes it clear in verse 2. Live a life filled with love. How? Well, first, right before it, it says that you are children of God. This starts with our identity as children of God. That is where it starts. And if you can truly let that rest and sink in, you will never feel like a fraud. You will know that you are loved, and you will live a life that demonstrates Christ's sacrificial love. Because to imitate Christ means to share that love with those around you. You see, he entered into our story. He gave his life for others. He humbled himself and took the form of a man. And we are called to do the same in our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces. And it's fascinating, if you just read the narrative of Jesus, the way that he operated in this pharisaical lifestyle is so fascinating to me. His missional engagement with everyone, with all people, lands him in some interesting spots. We see that he is found in the homes of tax collectors and notorious sinners. We see that he is placed alone at a well with a Samaritan woman and in the presence of those who are contagious and crippled. Jesus found himself often in spots where his presence could be misunderstood. But the people he was with were that important that it didn't matter. I'll never forget when we first moved to Salem, one of my neighbors on the street, we became, uh, we just got to know each other a little bit. And I'd only been living in Salem for maybe six or seven weeks when he said, hey, there's a mini golf tournament that's moving from restaurant to restaurant, kind of like a pub crawl mini golf tournament downtown. I'm trying to get a team. Are you in? I remember saying like, yeah, I like this guy. I'd like to get to know him a little bit more. So I said, yeah, I'm in. I'm in. And about a week later, he said, hey, I forgot to tell you, it's a costume mini golf pub crawl. I said, that's really interesting. All right, you left that out. He said, oh, and don't worry, I ordered you a costume. We're going to be inflatable ostriches. And so he said, and so you owe me some money. So I cash up him the money. The costumes come. We, we put on our inflatable ostrich costumes, and we, we get our things. And then he goes, and by the way, it's at 1030 on a Sunday morning downtown. Ooh, you left that out. And, and that was okay because I had no responsibilities that weekend, so I came to the 8 o'clock service because I'm, I'm a good churchgoer, and I don't even remember if I actually went to church that week. But anyway, I, we decided we're going to walk downtown. So we're walking downtown with our inflatable ostrich costumes and our putters, and cars are literally honking, pulling over, taking pictures of us. And we get downtown, and we start just going from hole to hole to hole. 
And then as it progresses and the 11 o'clock service at Salem Alliance lets out, all these restaurants downtown on this beautiful day are filled with Salem Alliance people out on the sidewalks. And here I am with my ostrich costume and my putter walking by all these parishioners that call me pastor on this amazing pub crawl. And I share that story because this guy, this guy, he's still a dear friend of mine. But it's just so interesting. We get to do these things. We don't have to worry how it sometimes could be perceived. But the imitation of Jesus continues here because he's often found in these places. And I think that sometimes we think Jesus is no longer tempted. Like, he's Jesus. And he's tempted at first before he starts his ministry. I mean, he's tempted huge. He goes into the desert. He faces all the major temptations. But then he beats them. And from then on, it's just good. He's good to go. I don't think that's a good reading of scripture. I think that as Jesus ministers everywhere he goes, he continues to have to be a watchman on guard, doing only the will of the Father. And here Paul is telling us that we should do the same, that we need to guard against evil and temptation. Here in Ephesians, Paul is giving us some parameters, some guidelines, and he calls us also to be watchful. He says, you need to be out in the world, but not of it. We are to be aware of our speech, on guard when it comes to sexuality and greed. And I want to camp here for a minute, because these guidelines for flourishing that Paul is giving us here and in other letters, he is pretty clear about some of these parameters, especially when it comes to sexuality. And many in our culture and many in our society say, look, those parameters on sexuality are so limiting and diminishing. Our culture is different. Look, here's the deal. In this letter, he is writing to the church of Ephesus about sexual immorality. And if you know anything about the city of Ephesus, it has all these gods of infertility. Sexual immorality is prevalent. And it's holding power over the culture in many ways the way it does now in our city as well. But here, Paul is very clear on what sexual immorality is. It's everything that is outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And that covers a lot. It covers everything from sleeping around, having an affair. It covers everything from objectifying others to pornography to even the misuse of sex within marriage. It is the use of sensuality and sex for anything out of God's good vision for it. And understand that God has a good and flourishing vision for it. But it must extend from a love and a respect for a spouse created in the image of God. Because that in that alone reflects the close relationship of God and the church, his bride. While some say that the traditions of this ancient book are just irrelevant and outdated, that these current trends just can't fit within it. You're saying there's nothing new under the sun? Have you studied the city of Ephesus? The parameters laid out in this book for us as followers of Jesus are shared for our flourishing. They remove the potential for wounding, misuse, abuse, and they are timeless. They're timeless. But here, Paul doesn't stop just with sexuality. He moves on to greed. Oftentimes, he hits greed harder than even sexual immorality, and part of that is much of sexual immorality stems from greed. Greed is a nasty problem. Oftentimes, I believe in the U.S. Christian church culture, we kind of focus on sins connected to lust, and we turn a blind eye to greed. Look, we shouldn't ignore issues of sexuality in our culture. We, the church, are a cross-cultural, a counter-cultural prophetic voice to our city. But we can't look past greed. 
Paul doesn't. Paul doesn't mince words here. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Let me just leave that one there for a second. Greed. Man, just reading through and praying through this text the last 10, 11 days, I personally had to get on my knees before the Holy Spirit and ask for his conviction to come. How quickly my financial goals can turn from just wisdom, proverbial wisdom of being prepared for what might come to false assurances, to false security. My rainy day fund, my retirement, the health insurance that I have. Yes, those are all good. But are we at times letting just some false securities come in? Here in Ephesians 5, Paul is saying you get to live in freedom, but live it in love. Because when that is the foundation, when love of Christ is our guidance, so many of these deceptions, these false securities, comforts, and assurances will lose their power. He calls us to live in love. And secondly, he calls us to live in light. He calls us to live in light. We see the concept of light used in two separate ways here. One, it produces, and two, it exposes. It produces and it exposes. In Ephesians 5, 8, and 9, it says, For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord, so live as people of the light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Christ, light of the world, came to illumine a better way for us, a way he allows our eyes to see that wisdom, to understand what is pleasing to him, what brings him worship, what is good, what is right, what is true, what will lead to our flourishing. But the reason we get to have that light is because of that identity piece. This passage starts with us being declared that we are sons and daughters of God, children of God. And it ends here in verse 14. It says, awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. I've always read this passage in Ephesians, and here I've always thought that that Paul is quoting some Old Testament prophecy. He's quoting something, and I just assumed it was an Old Testament prophecy, that Paul here is just reaching out to his Hebrew-speaking audience that knows the Old Testament well, the Hebrew scriptures, and just giving them a little wink. But as I studied this, I realized this passage is found nowhere else in scripture. This is actually, most historical theologians believe that this was an early liturgy for baptism. And it's important to understand that context. This was what they would pray when someone was being baptized. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. You see, we celebrated baptism last Thursday night, and next week, numerous people are going to enter into the waters of baptisms. You will not want to miss that. And when people are baptized, they're identifying with Christ, death and resurrection. They are being washed clean, and they enter out of the waters of new creation, but they also are given the light of Christ. There's something spiritually significant that's happening in the unseen realms when people are marked again with that identity through the waters of baptism. But here we don't just see that the light produces. Here we also see that light exposes. And this is an important one for us. It exposes the evil intentions that the enemy is using to keep us bound. Throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul continues to just drop these little lines that remind us that there is an unseen realm that is at work. Those that rebelled against God, the enslavers, the demonic, the powers of darkness, the principalities, they are at work looking to keep us bound. And part of taking off the old and putting on the new and being people of light is realizing that we are free, though many of us aren't living totally in that freedom. 
See, here's the deal. If you've made Jesus king of your life, if you are his child, as it says in verse 1, you are free and you get to recognize that freedom. But when you keep things in the dark, it causes you to continue to be reigned over by those sins. And it gives the enemy access. Scripture calls it a foothold. But when we bring those things into the light, it loosens the grip of the enemy. It makes us unattractive to the enemy. It allows him to have no footholds, and it gives us greater freedom. Guilt melts, but more so the enemy loses that control over us when we bring the sins and the secrets from the darkness into the light. Does this make sense? You see, there's a great theological truth here. It's what our whole healing prayer ministries are based on. And for some of us this morning that are here and still struggling with that shame and that condemnation and that fear, part of this is we need to bring some things into the light. We need to tell the enemy enough. For some of us, we just need to move the concept that our identity is secure and in God from our heart, from our head down to our heart and receive his light. The light produces and the light exposes. Paul's calling us to live in love, to live in the light. And it sounds so easy. And I'm so confidently preaching to, and yet it's not easy. Here's the deal. We want to do these things, but many of us are going to slip into those patterns of doing it on our own strength. I know that's true because I struggle with this in mighty ways. Oftentimes, I find myself, rather than relying on the Holy Spirit, I'm struggling and I'm walking into my own strength. Part of that is because on the Enneagram, I'm a three. Perception is important to me. I need to get stuff done. I need to look like I've got it together. I'm not only a follower of Christ, I'm a pastor of followers of Jesus. And so I got to make sure this is looking good, that you believe what I am saying up here. And so in those seasons where I am getting worn down because I'm not humbly inviting the Holy Spirit to work in me, and I'm quick to anger, and I speak too quickly when someone says something I disagree with rather than humbly listening and letting it go, in those seasons, I get exhausted. And those around me start to see it take a toll on me. And I know it's happening, but until I submit myself and receive forgiveness for that, but also receive the Holy Spirit to bring new levels of self-control, to allow my natural behaviors to come out and be beautiful, I'm tired. But when I do that, when I take those steps, suddenly I'm rested, suddenly I'm happier, suddenly I am functioning in a whole new way that actually produces incredible things. And here, that's the call that Paul's giving us because his final encouragement here actually starts in verse 15. And the third thing that we see is that we are called to live in the Spirit's power. You can't live, you can't live in love and you can't live in light without living in the Spirit. If you do it on your own strength, I'm telling you, you will be exhausted. It will not be nothing but behavior modification. But here in verse 15, it says, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul here is saying that we get to live with wisdom and discernment. He's going back to living in the light, knowing what is good and true and honoring of God. This new pattern of living with the Holy Spirit empowering us, showing us that wisdom, showing us that discernment, showing us what brings God worship is the end goal. It's what he talks to Titus about in Titus chapter 3. He's admonishing him to let the love and the light of Christ be known and manifested by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom, discernment of God's will, and the continuing filling of the Holy Spirit. It allows us to be transformed people. And so let me start, let me finish with where we started. When you walked in here, what were you feeling? And what are you feeling now? What is rising up now? To those of you who just saw this call in scripture to behavior modification, I hope that you see that this passage is not about behavior modification. This passage is about a transformation, a transformation that can only happen when the work of the Holy Spirit is happening in empowering your lives. And so to those of you who are exhausted tryhards out there, today I bless you with the renewed power of the Holy Spirit in your life. To those of you, when this scripture was read, you saw maybe a moral code that maybe we should put on our society. May you be reminded that these parameters given to Paul, yes, they're for flourishing, not of just individuals, but of collective society. They will guide us towards flourishing. But notice, Paul isn't suggesting that we power up and force these parameters on our society. Rather, he is inviting us to model them to our city, to our community, to show them a better way of living, to release peace, to do this. This kingdom of God thing operates a whole lot better when it starts from the grassroots up rather than when it is mandated from the top down. This way of living, spirit-filled, will allow flourishing and peace in our lives because as we walk out into our spheres of influence and live this way, more people will join. And as more people experience Jesus and are filled with his Holy Spirit, we will see the moral fabric of our society, of our city, rise as a result. And for those that were experiencing a gentle conviction when we read this scripture, I hope you were blessed today. I hope you were affirmed and you know that God loves you and he wants to see you flourish. Your identity is secure in him. Continue to bring what he brings to attention into the light. And I bless you. May you walk out of this place lighter and freer today. And finally, to the many in this room that likely sense the level of condemnation shame, or even fear. God is not angry with you. God is not angry with you. You are his son. You are his daughter. You are not a fraud. You are not a fake. You were bought at a high price because you are valuable. And so let me remind you, as a friend that used to preach here often would say all the time, God not only loves you, he also likes you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter that was written long ago in a city that's honestly not that different than ours. And Lord Jesus, we just, uh, we release today freedom from shame and condemnation and fear and we replace it with just the presence of your Holy Spirit. Would you bring refreshment? 
Would you bring renewal? Would you seal work that you're already doing? Would you give us the courage to follow you? And would our behaviors be nothing less than a worshipful response to you because you are good? So, Lord, we just declare freedom in this place today. We worship you, our good Father. And we take our burdens and we lay them at your feet. And we stand in our identity as children of the King. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.